Welcome to Global Questions by YDS, the podcast breaking down global politics for young people. I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. You're listening to Season 3, Episode 4 of our in-depth series on the intersection of faith and politics. We come from a secular country. Religion's not a big part of life in the way that it is in most other countries on Earth. And if you understand that, you see a whole new layer to international relations. Today, I am joined by Dr. Joshua Roos, a senior research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute, to discuss political evangelicalism and the populist right. So today, I'm joined with Dr. Joshua Roos. He's recently released the book, The New Demagogues, Religion, Masculinity, and the New Populism. Link to that is in the description for anyone interested. So thank you so much for being here, Josh. Did you want to talk a bit more about your book at all? Yeah, so the book uh, has quite literally just hit the shelves uh, internationally. It's really an attempt to understand what's been happening over the last decade in particular. If you had told us in 2010 (laughs) that in the next 10 years we would see the emergence of Donald Trump as president, the UK leaving the European Union, the rise and fall of the Islamic State, the extent of activity online and the emergence of the uh, the far right and and so on. I mean, I don't think anyone would have really believed you. This was at the height of the Obama years. We had a a Rudd or a Gillard government. I think it was uh, a reasonably sort of optimistic outlook on life. So I'm really looking and delving into the deep structural, historic um, and political factors that have shaped the emergence of all these things at the same time And, and really looking at, well, why has this occurred and where to from here? How do we best combat this? Because in the, in the context of COVID and the pandemic, it's only going to get worse. To start, can you tell me a bit about your career and how you actually became so specialised in this area? Yep. I, I distinctly remember 9-11. I, I remember watching it on TV. And I remember thinking, you know, this is going to lead to some sort of global conflict. And I remember thinking um, Islam's obviously going to be uh, implicated to some extent in this. So I did two things. On the one hand, I, I continued my studies, but then I wanted to do a PhD looking at political Islam. But on the other hand, I joined the army and went through officer training with the reserves. And I suppose I wanted to understand both sides of the equation and, and really where to from here. And they both really worked beautifully in terms of helping me understand the world and, and the way it works. But I remember also doing... Um, Really, so I did my undergraduate at Monash, my PhD at Melbourne. And in my undergraduate, I, even though I'm, I work in politics, history was very influential. And I remember studying the history of warfare and in particular the history of the Holocaust and, and being blown away that this had happened 60, 70 years before I was born, but in the lifetimes of many. And thinking if I can contribute in some way, shape or form to this never happening again uh, in my life, it'd be a life well lived. So that's, uh, that's sort of been the motivator um, and it's, it's taken me down a few sort of tangents in life. But um, really, I've started um, honing right in on religious and political violence and extremism and in particular, the, the new populism as well. And really I think we're at a particularly dangerous and pivotal point. So it's about understanding that, helping key decision makers understand it, helping students, the, the future leaders understand it. And, and hopefully making some sort of small dent in, in the problem. For someone with no background or knowledge on evangelicalism, what does that mean and what is its religious context really? 
In terms of some, some of the core characteristics of um, you know, what we're looking at, we're looking at a conversion process, this idea of being born again, from a life of sin to following God, a strong textualism or literalism uh, in the way that they interpret the Bible. They see the Bible as truth and that you must live according to that truth. The crucifixion is a particularly pivotal event. So we're looking at a belief that Christ's death has provided a reconciliation between inherently sinful earthly humans and God and the promotion of the word of God through sharing the gospel. And that's inherently political. This idea that you have to go out and not only share, but bring people to the gospel to follow God. So in short, we see a highly conservative group of textualist Christians who not only seek to live in the world, but to change it around them. They're highly charismatic. We're looking at things like faith healing, talking in tongues, focus on worldly success as a sign of God's favour. Um, and it's obviously got its roots in Protestantism. Uh, so we're going right back to Martin Luther, who raged, absolutely raged against the Catholic Church against Islam, against Judaism. He saw them all as corrupting um, the, the word of God. There are about 340 million evangelicals worldwide, uh, although it's fused through all the Protestant traditions. And you've seen elements of the Catholic Church, for example, taking it up as well to, to win adherence. And how would you describe the connection between political uh, evangelicals and the populist right? I'd argue that it's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, it's based in some ways on shared values, but also a concern and fundamental here is a concern with achieving political power. There is an overlap in the opinions, um, the need to reassert the traditional concept of man as head of the family and the household, define gender roles, opposition to any form of social progressivism, including LGBTIQ rights, nostalgia for an imagined past. So there, there are some um, ideas that resonate on both sides of the coin, but uh, they also... Um, you know, there are some cleavages as well. Some evangelicals reject the racism and, and social divisions of the right, uh, but we've seen um, in political outcomes that many more embrace it. So what role have evangelical groups played in promoting right-wing policies? I think evangelicals has played a, a key role in the rise of the right. They've been most active in the United States. We know that Trump has a few anecdotes about attending church. Uh, he likes to roll out whenever, whenever he needs to. And he's obviously uh, keen on using um, churches as props, Bibles as props, and, and so on. But we know that he doesn't aspire to live a life in any way infused by Christian values. But he has entered very much a transactional relationship with the religious right in the US. We're talking evangelicals, but we're also talking um, the, the Catholic right uh, as well. And really what he does is he offers them um, a set of, uh, effectively, a, a deal and says, you know, I will support your political uh, initiatives and, and, uh, and aims in exchange for your support. So he stacked the courts with a generation of conservative judges. Uh, we've seen the appointment of Supreme Court pro-life judges, and that's likely to result in a serious sort of existential challenge to Roe v. Wade. Uh, he's rolled back rights for all BGTIQ communities, He's positioned himself as a uh, supporter of religious freedom and liberty. Mm. That, that plays a key role in their foreign policies. This promotion of religious freedom internationally ties in beautifully to this idea of mission and, and spreading the word of Christianity and, and, and God. So, in, in effect, in exchange for a voted constituency, you know, we've seen seven to eight to nine out of ten evangelical voters vote for him. Um, he's provided them with what they're after. 
Before you mentioned this idea of new populism and you speak about it in depth in your academic pieces, what is new populism? You put a bunch of academics in a room and, and they could argue for, for days, and in fact, in this case, decades, about the definition of populism. I consider it in my book, I frame it as a tactic. Effectively, it's a way of amplifying your voice to a wide audience to achieve political power. It's really, to me, about saying and doing what is necessary to attain that power. And that's the tactical dimension of it. Now, if you apply that concept across the board, populism is inherently part of our political system. The most popular party wins the election. But populism is, I suppose, the extreme version of that, where you say and do anything to achieve a base and to maintain a constituency. You also talk about religion and how it inflects masculinity. Do you have an example of where this has played out, obviously, in a political campaign and how that actually feeds into those political ideas? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking here immediately of the either you or, or some of your listeners have surely seen um, some of the quite amazing um, pictures of, or, or portraits of Trump leading a, a crusade and on, on, on a horseback <laughs> and <laughs> waving um, you know, the crusader flag and, and so on. Religion um, is inherently tied up in concepts of masculinity because traditionalist religion sees men as head of the household, sees women have very defined gender roles as bringing up children. And if you look across the board at the evangelicals or the uh, Catholic fundamentalists, if you look at Islamists and, and the Islamic State literature, um, they all portray women as subservient to men, as men, as manly warriors fighting for the faith. It's this idea that goes back a thousand, two thousand years. And, and to that extent, when that infuses your worldview, it infuses your policies, it infuses the approach you take to your opponents. You position yourself as a, a warrior fighting you know, the evil other. When people talk about the populist right, it's always labelled as kind of a dangerous thing. But what are the risks of this rise in populism and can there be any good from it? I think what populism's doing is casting a, a light on some of the deeper social cleavages that have, have really become quite evident. Let's look at the two major events to occur in the past decade with the election of Trump, but also Brexit. What you saw in both instances were support amongst traditional blue-collar, white working-class men and, and families. So what we've seen is, on the one hand, people used to be members of trade unions that provided them a level of intellectual leadership about their role and their position in life. This gave them a sense of solidarity. People used to also go to church on Sunday. Trade unions have declined to almost nothing except in the public sector. Churches have declined to 5 to 6 to 7% attendance. We've seen the absolute annihilation of the intellectual and moral leadership that has traditionally shaped the working class. That created a void, and it created a void that could be filled by the loudest voice or the most polarised voice. And that led to the emergence of um, not only Trump but Nigel Farage, you know, and and that, that's happened globally across different Western contexts. It's happened here in Australia as well, where you've got uh, blue-collar workers looking to the, the political right as seeming to articulate their ideas more effectively. So in, in a nutshell, what populism has done in a positive frame 
if you if you can find a positive, is to cast a light on the left behind, on the people who feel themselves to have no, have no upward social trajectory and mobility, and and it gives us a chance to look at those policies and say, well, what's working, what's failed them dismally, uh, and and how do we better articulate a form of citizenship and a way forward for this group? Do you think that this political evangelicalism is spreading into the non-Western parts of the world? And if so, what's kind of been the main agent for that? Yeah, evangelicalism is certainly spreading into the global South in particular. And, and it, it spreads because within Christianity and the Christian denominations, there's this idea that you've got to proselytise, you've got to spread your faith. So there's been missions, well-funded missions going around the world. And that, that's, that's similar to the concept of dawah in, in Islam. And, and Islamic proselytisation. You go and you spread and you live with people. It's ironic that uh, Australia has produced some of the most successful proselytising um, evangelical movements. Hillsong uh, has over 80 branches in 23 countries, um, has over 100,000 people attending its services globally. And in some of those countries, Brazil, Fiji, Kenya, Mauritius, Mexico, Japan, Singapore, South Africa, the Ukraine. I mean, and this is coming from an Australian evangelical church. The American evangelicals are particularly uh, active in Africa, the continent of Africa, uh, South America and across Asia, uh, in particular in India. And what they do, and this is important for your audience, I suppose, is that they link their work to a form of foreign aid. You know, they're, they're working with some of the most desperate people on earth. They go in there and, and are well-funded and well-organised, uh, but on the one hand, where governments are constrained in their ability to express the national interest in their foreign aid, there's no such boundary uh, with the evangelical churches uh, or Christian churches in that work. They are very explicitly anti-homosexual, anti-abortion, anti-women and human rights in many respects, and really promote conservative form of Christianity. They also sponsor universities. You know, they're developing future conservative Christian leaders. Um, and, and in turn, that is filtering back into the West. In particular, um, you know, seminaries and, and theological colleges are declining in the number of um, you know, locally produced leaders. We're seeing increasingly people coming from the global south into these seminaries and promoting a particularly conservative form of Christianity back to Westerners. And so to some extent, they're hitting their diaspora, but in other respects, they're you know, they're, they're hitting, um, you know, white Australia and um, white America, uh, it's a, and in particular, white England. So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic and, and flow-on effect. So is the goal just like world domination? Isn't that the goal for everyone? Yeah, but <laughs> just like, what do you do when you get to that point? You have everything. Uh, it's inherently related to the colonial legacy. You've got white Westerners primarily going into some of the world's poorest, most destitute areas that have been decimated over a period of centuries by colonialism. And, and they're doing what the states aren't doing. Uh, they're providing schools, they're providing food and uh, a sense of community to, to people who might be otherwise destitute. That said, there's been a considerable backlash. Demagogic figures in particular um, hate them because they're, they're in effect providing a form of subversion. If you're a Christian in a country where there's corruption, where there's a state that's not working for its people, you know, automatically you're subverting the, you know, the natural order of things. 
And so in India, for example, there's been vigilante attacks, strong vigilante attacks against Christians and, and churches. Uh, churches are burnt down um, globally. And that ties into this promotion internationally of religious freedom by, uh, in particular, the US. We are always looking for new writers. Whether you're here in Melbourne or abroad, visit us at our website, theyoungdiplomats.com, under the Get Involved tab to find out more. I kind of want to talk a bit more about like democratic, secular countries versus non-democratic. How does that populist evangelical movement affect it differently? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's not just linked to the evangelicals. It's yeah. where uh, religion is out of power, it seeks to gain power. It seeks to align in some way with the dominant political actor. If it's already aligned, let's say the Church of England, it tends to, to mimic the, the mainstream view. So the, the mainstream Church of England was inherently opposed to Brexit. But one other area I identify is the relationship between Putin and the Orthodox Church. He has actually really mobilised the Russian Orthodox Church in his attempt to sort of uh, reconfigure Russian society in line with his values and, and his idea of you know, one government. And the Russian Orthodox Church, which was out in the cold under the communist regimes, has not only come back into the fold, but it's come into the fold as a powerful actor. And so when all these Western churches go to Russia to evangelicalize, they're actually being kicked out or locked up. Mm. And he's attempting to frame Russian men who have um, been particularly hard hit by the economic climate and everything else through the church reconfiguring them as you know, the head of the household, as, as strong um, Orthodox Christians. So there's a lot going on and we just, we're not looking at it. You know, there's a tendency in Western scholarship and in the way that we train our scholars and in particular our international relations scholars and diplomats and, and so on, to view the world through a secular frame. Uh, we come from a secular country, religion's not a big part of public life in the way that it is inherently in most other countries on earth. And if you understand that, you see a whole new layer to international relations. Evangelicalism and the populist right seem to contradict Christians and non-Christians alike. Do you believe that their political coalition in that way is vulnerable to fracturing? Um, Well, we've seen it um, in the US with uh, Trump. Trump's lost some support. When someone is acting so blatantly in opposition to religious values. Some people have had to make that call for themselves. But, you know, at the end of the day, you also got 71 million votes, which is a record. It's only that Biden got more. So it, it hasn't cost him per se. I think the, the coalitions are most vulnerable to fracturing when that political relationship breaks down and the populist right, for example, don't deliver what they say they will. When that transactional dimension of that relationship breaks down, and one party doesn't perform, so one party either doesn't bring its votes to the table or doesn't implement anti-abortion laws, that's when it will fracture. I know you've given a few examples, but are there any more like outstanding political examples of where evangelicalism on the populist right has had big effects? Well, I mean, it's more about religion per se. Uh, we're talking, when we talk about evangelicalism in the US, you know, um, obviously that's the key. But when you go to Europe, you're talking the Catholic Church. Mm. If you go to Eastern Europe, you're talking the Orthodox Church. 
Um, and it's also an element within Islam. Um, Erdogan, for example, in Turkey is mobilising uh, a form of Islamist base. There, there are many examples internationally of that relationship and it's getting stronger. Do you believe that the coalition between evangelicalism and the populist right is likely to grow stronger or weaker in the coming decades? There's this, there's this idea within religion and religious theory of post-secularism. It's this idea that we're in a new world. Um, Islam will be the world's largest religion within 30 or 40 years by number. Key Christian figures see that as a threat and they're mobilising and attempting to influence governments and, and, and this idea of a Christian Europe. Religion is here to stay. It's here to stay in international relations as a factor shaping governments. At the end of the day, the economy is always going to be potentially the key factor shaping policies, right? But increasingly, religion is intersecting with the economy. And I think as you see an increasing polarisation, religion is going to continue to play a key role. And, like, what do you think could counteract what's happening? One is at a domestic level. I argue very strongly for a reinvigorated citizenship, classical form of citizenship. Society's become so polarised by identity politics. Everyone has increasingly come to look out for themselves or their subgroup. And, and the nation and the idea of nation has taken a hit and become unfashionable because it's become appropriated by the political right and the hard right, nationalists. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the idea of nation and national community. It's something, in fact, that's defined our progress for hundreds of years. So in, in many ways, what I'm arguing, I'm not arguing for things like inscription and, and that sort of stuff, but I'm arguing that we need to look at ways that there's a requirement to actually meet some responsibilities back to something bigger than yourself. And we need to actually look at ways to contribute to, to growing Australia um, as, as a country, as a self-standing potential future world leader in, in many ways if we continue to grow. So that, that's one dimension. That's the domestic but the international is really um, challenging and it's become challenging because the aims of um, religions have become increasingly enmeshed with those who have um, attained power and status. Modi has a strong Hindu national space, for example. Bolsonaro, you know, he's spoken out against the Catholic Church, but he's also got a strong base amongst the religious adherents, right? If you look at Italy, the League of Nord had some sort of hard right Catholics. If you look at Poland, there's a strong Catholic support base. On the one hand, the political left need to get their house in order. But when they do attain power, they don't need to exclude religion. It's been a militant exclusion of religious actors that has given religious actors the idea that they can only attain some form of um, say in society through going to the right wing. But it really is important that both sides of politics acknowledge that um, religion has played a force you know, in our morality, our institutions, our courts, the way we view ourselves, to take it seriously, respect religion, and, and, to, and to give a space for religious voices that I think have largely felt themselves excluded from the left and only heard on the right. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm glad that we are able to interview you today. It's been very valuable. Thank you so much. And there's more in the book, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So go check out the book. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this in-depth episode. Make sure to check out YDS on social media, where you'll find articles and info about upcoming events. We'll see you next week.